0: Got a Bible or a PDA to look, look up your Bible on? I forgot what PDA stands for, no? Personal digital something. Anyway, assistant. Um, let's pray together. I'm going to mention a few people in prayer who are sick and you can pray along with me. For them it's good to see Gordon recovering back here with us. Thank God for that. Uh, Barbara Doe is still unwell. David Morgan still recovering up in Yorkshire. Maurice doing better but he's frail. And it's good to see Kevin here again today. Doing better. Father we pray for our friends right now. We ask you that through Jesus, who is, was and is our great healer, that you'll do good to them and show your power to them and heal them, please, Lord. We commit ourselves to you as we examine your word today, that you'll help us, Holy Spirit, you inspired words of truth. You bring the truth to our hearts. You make it cut into us even, open us up deal with us, put us back together again. Thank you, Father, that you cleanse and purify your people through your truth. Do it now again, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got to the last chapter of Hebrews. It was the beginning of summer, or certainly the uh, beginning of July, when I was last in Hebrews some weeks since we got to the end of Hebrews 12 with, For Our God is a Consuming Fire. It's tempting to go back to headlines, but that would take time that we don't really have this morning. But like almost every New Testament letter, Hebrews 13 is where all the statements of truth that have been set out in all of those previous 12 chapters get practical applications, specific instructions. All right? These are not recommendations. These are instructions. (laughs) In fact, we could even put the word commandments on them. God doesn't commend things, he commands them. That's his his authority to do that. Here's where I want to go today. I think there are six points in the first seven verses of Hebrews 13, and they all connect to the word love. All right, we'll go through them. Firstly, love one another. Love one another by practicing hospitality. Love one another by remembering prisoners and those who are persecuted. Love your spouse. Don't love money. Love, honor your leaders. All right? Six points there that we're going to pick up as we go through. First of all, love one another. Hebrews 13, verse 1. I'm reading for the New American Standard. I usually do. Let love of the brethren continue. That's an old fashioned word, isn't it? Brethren. The family of God, the, bro- the, fa- the, 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 the brotherhood and sisterhood that we belong to together as, as church. A few weeks ago on how good is our God, I dashed through 1 John 4 to show you that God is love. is speaking about His love, not everything that we call love. We mustn't reverse that statement and say love is God. God is love, but love is not God. Don't make every kind of love God. People claim that because some relationship or behavior has love in it, it's okay with God. That is simply not true because some relationships and some activity he's forbidden in his word and people use this oh God loves everybody and all kinds of love is God to justify their behavior what John 1 John 4 sets out in stating God is love is threefold first of all the love of the father for us in sending and giving Jesus up to the cross then the love of Jesus for us in fulfilling that mission And then because we receive the love of God, we share the love of God with our fellow Christians. Because we are loved by God. That's what the whole context is of 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. Some versions, old versions have we love him, but that's not in the original. We love him and we love one another because he first loved us. It is the love of God being reflected back to him and out to his children. And those two are unbreakably connected. John says you can't say you love God and hate your brother, your Christian brother. It's not true. In fact, he goes further. and says you're a liar. Thanks, John. I'm glad you said it, not me. He who does not love the children of God, the brethren, should not claim to know and love God. Those who are determined to avoid the company of Christian believers should give up calling themselves a Christian. I'm still a Christian. I just don't do church or fellowship anymore. Give it up. You're not allowed to claim to be still be a Christian if you ignore, avoid, disdain, hate for your fellow Christian. Remember that the love shared between the followers of Jesus has a special significance. Jesus commands it. And it's a clear evidence of his gospel and of his own person. A new commandment I give to you, said Jesus, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. Not that you have ten campaigns. They're fine. They serve a purpose or that you know all the holy religious language of Scripture, or that you pray like a, a steam train when it's time, or, or that you speak in tongues you know, all, the, all day long. They will know you're my disciples when you have love one for another. All sorts of things are good, but this one really matters to him. So what the apostle is writing here is not, oh, by the way, love one another, Oh, I I just remember, I need to encourage you. It's a central part of his application of the doctrine set out in this letter. Loving your fellow Christians, your brothers and sisters in Christ, is an essential evidence and an example of the truth of the gospel. The world is supposed to see this and see the evidence that this love of God is real. And we're to love in deeds, in actions, not just in words. Oh, I really love you, bro. Do something to help him or her. And so it says, love one another by showing hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Love must have deeds, not words. Here's an example of loving hospitality. This goes beyond our household. You're not being hospitable when you get your family around. You're being hospitable when it goes way beyond your family, your household. Practice hospitality. Open your home. In fact, this instruction is open your home not just to friends and people you know, but to visitors, to strangers. And there was a very important context for first century believers in this. See, a traveling Christian in those days didn't stay at the local Premier Inn because it was a place of immorality. You didn't just get a room for the night, there was a whole lot more you got for the night. Don't go there. So they couldn't stay at those commercial premises. So they were dependent, whether they were traveling for the gospel's sake or for business or, or whatever, they were just on a journey. They were dependent on Christians whom they had never met opening their home and receiving them. And in fact, that is why from an early time, Christians would often have a symbol on, near their front entrance. They would have what we call the Cairo, the letters of Jesus King, Greek letters, or they'd have a fish sign. You remember the fish sign? It was a symbol saying, we are Christians, and if you're a Christian, you can come and stay here for the night. In fact, early letters outside of the New Testament, early letters written, still in that period of time, but not inspired as scripture, say, when you receive somebody, they're to stay one night, you know, and then be on their way. They're not to make any more demands of you, than one night and a reasonable meal when they're with you. And if they ask for more, they're a false believer. They're a false teacher. You just tell them to be on their way. All right. They're not to ask you for money. You're to give them, a, you know, a bed for the night and 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 food to eat, and then bless them on their way. So there was, there was instructions, give practical instructions on how you did this. Yeah. You weren't being you weren't to be leached on. You weren't to be just you know, they they couldn't come in and take all your household. You know, that wasn't allowed. But to give them room for the night was part of that society at that time. Abraham welcomed three men to a meal. They turned out to be two of them, the angels of God, and one, the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself, appearing in physical form. Lot too welcomed men into his home who turned out to be the angels of God. So some welcomed angels unawares by opening their home to strangers in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Have people entertained angels of God today? Well, if they've done this sort of thing, maybe they have. We won't know until the day of the Lord reveals it, will we? But let me ask you something. This hospitality thing is an essential part of Christian character. When did you last welcome visitors to your home? Maybe people you know rather than people you didn't know. To a meal. To host a fellowship evening. When was was the last open house in your house? Love with deeds, not just words. Then it says, love by remembering the prisoners and the persecuted. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Now, some of us may know one or two people who are in prison, but sadly they're not there because of the gospel. But the time was when you could be put in prison for preaching the gospel. And those outside, still in freedom, needed to support their friends in prison. In fact, to this day, in parts of the world they won't eat unless you take them food, right? You've got to support your friends in prison. You've got to make sure they've got something to eat every day. A few centuries ago, John Bunyan, great gospel preacher and church leader, he actually founded many churches, not far from here, was imprisoned altogether for more than 12 years simply for being a preacher of the gospel and a leader of nonconformist churches. Altogether for 12 years. And when they said to him, if you promise not to preach the gospel, we'll release you. He said, the moss can grow on my eyebrows before I will promise not to preach the gospel. Today, in the UK, street preachers are increasingly being arrested and charged on some vague notion that when it goes to court it's thrown out. Again and again, the cases are being thrown out because the preachers haven't said anything other than the plain truth of Scripture. But, That's happening. How long before the balance tips and people actually do go to prison simply for preaching the gospel news of the Bible? We need to remember those who are in prison for the gospel's sake. And many around the world today are in prison for the gospel's sake. In Iran, in Iraq and other places. But the scripture also widens it out here to remember those who are ill-treated. We have a duty of care towards our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, which is why Sunday by Sunday we ask you to give something into Barnabas Fund. We're members of the same body; they suffer. We need to choose to engage with their suffering. On Sundays, bring your tithes and offerings to the Lord and to Lighthouse, to local church, but also bring something to help our brothers and sisters who suffer around the world, and get involved with. Ely missions, as we said earlier, too. Love one another by remembering those who are in prison. Really, this one here is for the gospel's sake. And those who are persecuted, and maybe not in your country, but around the world they are. There's certainly persecution in Nigeria. There's certainly persecution in other parts of Africa. There are certainly parts of the world in Asia where... Persecution today is happening as fiercely, as intensely as it has ever happened in history. There are more martyrs, more people being killed for the name of Jesus now than ever have been. And we are blinkered to it because the BBC don't report it. Let's move on. I need to move on because I've got a lot to do. Next one is love your spouse. Love your spouse. Now, I have to be careful how I say this. There are younger ones in the room. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Why does marriage matter? Because, according to Ephesians 5 and other scriptures, it bears some image... It's a picture of the relationship between God and his people, between Christ and his church. In scripture, marriage is defined as being one man and one woman joined together for life. That is how the Lord Jesus taught it. I haven't time to bring all the scriptures in. You can look them up. I'll help you if you want more information. I'll support this with more scripture and argument if you want me to. So that is what the Apostle directs here. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed, physical intimacy in marriage, is undefiled. But fornicate is an adulteress. God will judge. There are two words there. Let me explain them to you. A fornicator who has sexual activity without marriage, therefore including activity before marriage. It's outside of a marriage covenant. Within an adulterer is someone who behaves in such activity that breaks faithfulness in marriage, either their marriage or the one they have, they're using as a partner. That partner's marriage is being conflicted, dishonored, even destroyed by that activity. And the scripture here says very plainly God will judge both of those kinds of people. He will judge it. He will condemn it. And that is stated throughout the New Testament. This will not be left unjudged. Now people say, Oh, that's the Old Testament. Let me say this to you today. There is no moral law of the Old Testament, which is not repeated in the New Testament. It's restated, it's reconfirmed by the words of Jesus and by the teaching of the apostles. Nothing that really matters in terms of morality, whether that's thieving, covetousness, you know, uh, lying, deceiving, or, or, or sexual morality is not repeated in the New Testament. It is not Old Testament law. It's Bible truth through the whole Bible. Inescapably so. You've got to reject the whole Bible to turn your back on moral law. We are not under the food laws, the rituals, the festivals of the law, but God's moral law remains unchanged, cannot be broken, and indeed has been confirmed by the words of Jesus and the writings of the apostles. What God called sin in the law, he still calls sin. The law defines and describes and 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 picks out for us, this is unbecoming, this is dishonoring to God, this does not glorify God. It defines sin, still does. And God will judge all sin, including sin which breaks the marriage covenant. Now we need to state very clearly that our society, and sadly, this so grieves me, parts of the church too, condones sin and dishonors the covenant of marriage and what's called here the marriage bed. People say to me, if I argue this with them, yeah, but times have changed. To which I say, I know a bit more history than you, perhaps. They haven't. No, they haven't. Listen, this New Testament was written in the eight years, AD 30 to AD 55, 60, 70, 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead. In the New in the time of the Roman Empire, is what I meant to say. In the time of the Roman Empire. In fact, most of it was written when one of the most evil men to ever hold any authority on planet Earth, called Nero, was the Roman Emperor. And Roman society was thoroughly corrupt. In every way. Absolutely. Absolutely filthy. When the Bible says, in letters that were written in AD 40, 50... You know, leave this way of life. It was as radical then as it sounds to people today. Times have not changed and the Bible doesn't need to change. It's as radical then as it is now. It caused as much offense then as it does now. We are not living in a different generation. We're living in a very similar generation. And the Bible says these things as radically, as truthfully now as it did then. It hasn't changed. The truth doesn't need to change. God's word runs contrary to society. It did in their society, it does today. What is taught in judgment is as radical now as it was then. Here are two parallels from Paul's letters that align with Hebrews 13. Ephesians 5, verse 3 to 4. But immorality or any impurity, or greed, must not be even named among you, Christians, as is proper among saints, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk, no coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, whether it's the government or parts of the church. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In Colossians, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality impurity, passion, evil desire and greed which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Sexual intimacy within marriage is blessed and honored by God. It is, to use an expression which you might find strange, it is a sacrament. It is blessed by God. It's to be held in honor by all. But that activity beyond the marriage bed is dishonorable in every occasion and is subject to the judgment of God. Whatever our laws and our conventions and our society says about it, that is what God says about it. So the church has no business blessing what God does not bless. It does not have that authority. The day of God's judgment will come upon all who've dishonoured the marriage bed. Therefore, Paul writes to the Corinthians, "Flee from immorality." Hebrews goes on to say, Hebrews thirteen, "Don't love money. Don't love money. Make sure that your character, your way of life, is free from the love of money." Being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? You might think that's a change of gear there, but it isn't. You see, because God's law tells us we can covet a person, that is, we desire them intimately. We can covet, the same word, possessions. I can covet my neighbor's wife or his donkey for very different purposes. So it is not as strange as it may appear to move from immorality to covetousness. Remember that the Lord Jesus clearly teaches us that in handling money, income and wealth, we must reject two things. Number one, the love of money. And number two, the fear of poverty. We must be generous and give faithfully and then also live confidently in God's generosity to us, including giving us the job we need when we need it. Amen? Amen. It's part of God's goodness. We live confidently in his generosity by practicing generosity ourselves. He also teaches us, Jesus teaches us, these are his words, that money is unrighteous, deceitful, and will fail us. And I've said these things before. I'm not going to give you all the scripture proof right now. He goes further and says that if you love money, you are loving and serving a false god. And he gives it a name. It's mammon. If you love money, you are loving a false god. Another god. We're instructed here to keep our character free from the love of money, to deal ruthlessly with it. Treat it as an enemy and poison to your soul. Eradicate it. Kill it. We know from the Gospels the Pharisees were lovers of money. Paul writes to Timothy that one of the qualifications of an elder is that he must be free from the love of money. And some of you will have come across prosperity teaching, health and wealth kind of stuff. Well, do you know what? That's new. Here's Paul warning Timothy about that very thing. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrines conforming to godliness. He is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction, between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, listen, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They think faith is the way to riches. Right? But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so we we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich... Fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. How many really rich people have marriages that survive? How many of them are actually even approaching happy? For the love of money is not the root of all evil, it's the root of all kinds of evil, many kinds of evil. And some, by longing for it, for longing for money, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary on Hebrews, says, The chief pang which pierces the heart of the lover of money is gnawing anxiety. The greedy person can never be happy. But the opposite of covetousness is contentment. Here's a verse from Ecclesiastes. It is better to be satisfied with what you have than to be always wanting something else. That is how we deal with this love of money. Firstly, by organizing our finances and giving faithfully and generously. Starting with time, and then by choosing contentment, choose contentment so frame of mind, I will not think like that, I choose to think like this. Lord, help me we 're instructed here to be content with what we have. We do not need to sign up to 21st century consumerism. we don 't need it all. We can be immune. To the adverts. I want to, be, I want to get a jab. Well, I've got a jab that, can, that makes me immune to the adverts. I think, don't need it. Don't want it. Why? Because I'm believing some truth that says, I don't need that. You want to convince me I need more of that, more of that, more. People fill me up, you need insurance. I know I don't. No. We don't have to spend more and more money to buy more and more toys to fill our lives with more and more distractions. We don't need it, folks. I'm, t- I'm telling you something that's so plain, it's like the nose on my face, but it sounds weird, because we're so used to the way the world works. Here's the Lord Jesus again. Beware. Be on your guard against every form of greed, wanting more. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions you see the love of money can be seen in different ways you can hoard it you can spend it you may not have it but you just want it it's the same thing it's the love of money and it's so ingrained in our society that a person who lives in opposition to the love of money looks like they come from another galaxy which in a way we do don't we it's called heaven the cure is not to take a monkish vow of poverty. Oh, woe is me. It is godly stewardship and generosity. that Femi was preaching last week at the CD. It's to live with an open hand and an open heart before the Lord, to be generous and faithful in our giving and to be content with what we then have in our hand as being from the Lord, who will supply all my needs living confidently in his goodness. Handle money shrewdly, with care. It's dangerous stuff. It'll poison your heart if you're not careful. Give all you should and then go on to learn to excel in generosity. Be content with the Lord's provision. Budget and live within what you have after giving what you should. You need to change your priorities. You maybe need to change your spending patterns. You need to change, you know some of the things you're doing, how you, use, how you use your money. So you can say, I'm going to give what I should and then I'm going to live within the rest. Steward what is left in your hands with wisdom because it, it isn't all yours anyway. When a person withholds what should be given, it will not profit them. Haggai talks about you put money in a bag but the bag's got holes. It's just not all there. You think, where's it all gone? John Piper, preaching about tithing years ago, said uh, one of his elders came, said to him when he preached about tithing, he said, Pastor, he said, I know from experience, if you don't tithe to the Lord, he has a way of making sure you don't keep it anyway. <laughs> the Lord holds us accountable in this, and I know in my own soul, it is better for me, it's better for us as a household, Carol and I as a couple, To live with his blessing on what is left when we have given and tithed and helped and given to charity and whatever else. It's better to live on a blessed ninety less than 90% than to have 100% which is unblessed. That's the deal. It's better for my soul, for my household, to live with the blessing of God upon what we have left when we've given as we should than to say, it's all mine. I use that I want. That is not good. Living in generosity and giving and is living in the grace and goodness of God, living in contentment, having given what I should to the Lord, is living in his blessing. Not keeping it all, is living in his blessing. And our true treasure is the Lord himself, who says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So we can say, the Lord is my helper. I'll not be afraid. What can man do to me? Well, that can kill me, but that's another matter. In fact, be content with what you have uses a Greek word there that's to do with the Lord's presence. Elsewhere it talks about his coming, his presence. So it's not about present possessions. It's really about his presence, being content with him. I may not have much, but I've got him. No matter what we do or do not have materially, we have the Lord, we have his grace We have his promise, we have his presence. Faithful in in giving, content and confident in God's goodness, keep yourself from the love of money. Now, I want you to take note of something I'm going to say to you today. So you hear me say it, you know I've said it. Together with Sharon, who's our finance officer, I know the details of what each of us give to God through Lighthouse. Sharon has to do that because she's a finance officer. I do it because I'm responsible as the healing minister here in this church for the finances of the church. So that you know, I'll say it again, I know who gives and what we each give. That causes me week by week to rejoice over some people, and particularly those who I know are widows and on small incomes who give so faithfully, week after week, month after month. It causes me to truly rejoice. Causes me, in other cases, to have a deep pastoral concern for your soul. Keep yourselves free from the love of money. Kill it. How do you kill it? Learn to give faithfully and generously. Learn contentment. And it goes on. Remember, honor, those who led or lead you. Who spoke the word of God to you? And considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Some English versions put this in the past tense, and think they say this about people who have died, leaders they used to have. But I see it as you know. Other versions say, "Remember those who lead you, who have spoken the word of God to you," because further down, a few more, it says this, and I think the two are connected. Obey your leaders. Submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So I think this is about those who lead you and have spoken the word of God to you. We'll come back to that verse in a few weeks' time. We need to honor those who lead us and speak God's word to us. Your Christian leaders and overseers must be known to you. People who speak God's word to you and whom you can observe, you can watch their life, you can consider And choose to imitate them. Let me say this plainly to you. You can't observe, consider and imitate somebody you don't know. A voice and face on a TV screen, a voice on a radio broadcast or podcast, words on a printed page. You can't imitate those people. Because you don't know how they live away from the public moment. In fact, sometimes it comes out they don't do very well away from the public moment. You can't watch them away from the microphone and the camera. You must not give them that kind of authority and submit yourself to them. You can be informed by them, you may be in, helped by them in some way, but they are not over you in the Lord. You need to choose to be part of a church where someone is over in your Lord that you are willing to follow. Now you say, Well, I. We're not a large church, but in a large church, not everybody would know the senior leader very well, but the senior leader has the responsibility of getting around him a team whom he trusts and who replicate his heart so that whoever deals with any part of the leadership team is dealing with the same core values, the same sense of purpose, the same overall character because they value the same things. The teams stand or fall together. Therefore, the leaders, the senior leaders, Huge responsibility to choose them well because they represent Him and the values they stand together for. The main thing in Christian leadership is just this. They speak the Word of God to you. They preach it. They teach it. They apply it. They give pastoral care and counsel with it. I, some people come to me looking for an answer. I said, I can't give you another answer. You, you seem to want one which I can't give you. I can only talk the Bible to you. It's all I know. It's all, I've, it's all I have. You know, if you want a different answer, you're going to have to go somewhere else, because all I know is Bible. It's my responsibility to proclaim the truth of God's Word, even person to person. So the leader's authority is founded in God's Word, and when a leader steps outside of God's Word, their words have no authority. They're just an ordinary Charlie expressing their opinion. His words must be in their mouth. And they've got to be very careful not to put their words in his mouth. But when a Christian leader, preacher, teacher accurately declares God's word to you, do you know what? We are then accountable to God for having heard his word. Here's Jesus again. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. People might think that rebellion against leadership and against the authority of God's word is like,
1: I don't like that, I don't want to hear it. I'm
0: I'm not in that. Well, do you know what? Rejection and rebellion isn't always noisy and in your face and obvious. It can be simply indifference. You can listen. But in your heart, you refuse to receive, respond to act. I want to tell you again this morning, I mean, God bless Tepi, to, Toppy, Femi. <laughs> Toppy's is an old, else. Femi. But he would say the same thing. Preaching is not a performance. Oh, he did well today, didn't he? It's not a performance, folks. Because when we hear God's word, we're responsible for having heard God's word. We're instructed and directed by it. To hear and not do is disobedience to God. But notice the connection here. Keep yourselves free from the love of money is followed in verse 7 by honor your leaders. And as Femi said last week, must it's not Topi's Femi. As Femi said last week, to honor your leaders when you get to to, to, to the Timothy and Titus letters is actually to make sure you pay them. Very necessary in which you in which you honour those who lead and pastor you is making sure they're paid and supported. And the way that Ealing finances work is this: when this local church has paid all its other bills that month, I can be paid out of what is left. Now I'm not paid all that's left. I'm set a salary, but I'm only paid that salary if it's there. They have an expression for that: I'm paid off the plate. Which is why sometimes I tell you, you know, our finances are tight. Why? Because you need to know. Here's the New Testament pattern. The pastor has the care of the people. The people care for their pastor. How? By being nice to him and greeting him and giving, you know, a nice shake of the hand? Oh, Well, yes, but also by making sure that his income is regular and secure. Words that honor a leader are really worthless without the practical faithfulness and love happening behind the scenes. I've rattled through this. The last verse we're going to look at today, but we're not going to look at it. I just want to end here today. Why does Paul, I believe it's Paul writing Hebrews, go on to say Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever? Because He says, imitate their faith. The outcome of their faith. The outcome of a good Christian leader's example is this, that he's showing you what it is to follow Jesus. Got it? And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is the point of Christian leadership, to keep pointing people to Jesus and how to follow Jesus and become more like Jesus. Because he doesn't change. When you read about him in the Gospels, he's the same Jesus today. And we wouldn't have such weird ideas about God and about Jesus if we would read the Gospels. I'm reading that book by J.B. Phillips, how, you know, uh, Your God is Too Small. And he says, you know, that, that's, I mean, I was taught the song when I was a kid. It's not, not blaming my parents at all. But, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You read the Gospels, meek and mild, my foot. He's fierce, man. He's brave, he's bold, he's courageous. He tells people the truth face to face. And the the more they're against him, the stronger he is in saying it plainly to them. You know? Jesus was not a polite Englishman mumbling his words with three marbles in his mouth. He spoke the truth plainly to people. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the supreme leader, the great shepherd. When leaders that he sent and appointed come to the end of their work, for whatever reason, Jesus remains. When it's time, he'll provide further leaders to churches where his name is honored. But as we know from the book of Revelation... If a church does not honor his name and and pursue his truth, he will close it down. It might take a generation or even two, but it will close because it doesn't honor his name. Jesus remains and does not change. These instructions we've looked at today and others we'll look at in two weeks' time, because next week I'm going to just come back to Jesus Christ. is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I felt the Lord kind of... Stick me in the ribs on one. David, if you can't preach one whole morning on that, you've forgotten how to preach. So I said, okay, Lord, all right, (laughs) I'll do it. These instructions are not random or arbitrary. They form a pattern of our obedience to Jesus Christ. You see, we have been saved by the grace of God to obey Jesus Christ, to do what he says to do His will. In fact, almost the very end of Hebrews 13, there's a prayer. And at the very heart of the prayer, there's one request, one request, that Paul puts in that prayer. That you may do what is right and fulfill His will. That you may do His will. But next Sunday, I'm going to take, in the morning, just to deal with Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today forever. Because in the end, after all, this is all about Jesus. It's all about Him. Being a Christian is not about simply a kind of believism. Oh, I believe, I believe, I believe. It, that faith gets into the whole of life and changes the way we live. We begin to walk in obedience to him. We receive his instructions as commands and we don't, oh, I don't like commands. Well, get over it, grow up. Jesus gives us commandments. He gives us instructions. He gives us clear directions because they are good for us. Do this, it's good for you. Stop doing that. It's not good for you. And we need to receive those instructions which are here throughout the New Testament as the words of Christ to us. And we'll take them to heart and put them into action so that our soul prospers. Our inner man, inner woman, maybe grows and develops. Some of us stay small. In faith, small in heart, because we won't break through on one or two particular issues of obedience. We'd love to have great faith for this and great faith for that, but you know, faith grows because you obey what he's told you to do, and then you go into the next step. and you know you, you, you learn through steps of faith, steps of obedient faith to trust him for more. It's a walk, folks. It's a journey. And if you're stuck, you need to say, Lord help me, I gotta I gotta I gotta kick this thing down and get through this. I, I gotta change, this has got to move. This must change. Sing this together.
1: From from my can't get the key. Jesus said Nothing in this world will do Jesus, you're the center Everything revolves around you Jesus, you From my heart to the heavens From my heart to the heavens Jesus, be the center. It's all about you. Yes, it's all about you. From a heart, heart, to the heavens. Jesus, be the center. It's all about you. Yes, it's all about you. From a heart, heart, to the heavens.
0: whatever it is your heart wants to say to him, needs to say to him right now, say it. You can say it really quietly, but say it. Make your response to him. Don't be just someone who said, that was a good preach, move on. Preaching is not about performance, it's about impartation. Make sure you've heard. You know what to do. You've asked the Lord for grace to do it. You shut it in your heart. You're going to look to Him for His help. You're going to trust Him. You're going to obey Him. You know the obstacle. You know the step that your foot has been shrinking back from again and again and again. Why don't you confirm before Him this morning, Lord, give me Your grace. We were singing earlier, I can do all things. By His grace, by His strength, I can do all things. You need to put that into faith right now. I am going to see this change by your grace, by your help, Lord. I'm going to make the step. I'm going to take the action. You will help me. You will be with me. You may need to settle things as a household, as a couple, as a family. This must change. By God's grace, we will ask Him and receive from Him the strength to do it. Maybe there are other things that I've mentioned today. I've particularly wounded your conscience. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to hurt you. You need to hear the word of the Lord. It's my responsibility to make sure you hear God's word. But you can turn to him today say, Oh, Father in heaven, please have mercy upon me. Please forgive me according to the grace that is available in Jesus and because of his cross. Here we are before you, Lord Jesus. Just as 12 or 11 or sometimes a couple of hundred people sat around you, hearing a word, we have heard again the words of God today. We pray that our faith may rise to action. Not even merely to consideration, but to action. For again and again, you have said to us, Lord, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. And if you hear these things, blessed are you if you do them. We pursue your blessing. We want to know more of your goodness and blessing. Thank you for our brothers and sisters who are getting jobs, Lord. Thank you for that. Thank you for a new job being Lana Faranika as well. Thank you, Father. But we, we mark your blessing as being part of the, your regard and reward for our living before you, under your hand, under your gaze, as obedient children. And so we thank you for it, Lord. We return to you thanks. We return to you generous and thankful giving. We come again and again say, what more, Lord, may we do to fulfill your will? Here am I, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Debbie. We're going to break bread together this morning.